Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week, we continue our ongoing discussion of the dilemma China faces as the Russo-Ukrainian War is about to enter its fourth week at the time of recording on March 17th. Let me note that in the weeks ahead, I've got some shows lined up with guests, including former Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, Susan Thornton. I've got Yun Sun, who heads the China program at the Stimson Center, who, by the way, wrote one of the best pieces I have yet read on China's situation in uh, War on the Rocks. So definitely check that out, especially ahead of our conversation. And uh, with the historian and former national intelligence officer for East Asia, Paul Heer, who has been a guest on the program before. I'm sure listeners all agree that it's very important to try and understand how this whole thing is viewed from Beijing how the Chinese leadership is taking in this situation and weighing China's options against its own strategic goals. With this in mind, I am really excited to introduce today's guest, Dingding Chen. Chen Dingding, who is Professor of International Relations at Jinan University in Guangzhou, China, where he joins us from. He is also a non-resident fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute, GPPI, in Berlin. He is also the founding director of Haiwo Tuzhi Yanjiu Yuan, the Intelisia Institute, an independent think tank focusing on artificial intelligence and international affairs in China, which is itself a fascinating topic, but one that we'll have to wait for another time when I can have him back on. Anyway, he writes frequently for The Diplomat, and you can find many of his excellent essays there. Ding Ding Chen, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Ding Ding, since you are new to the show, perhaps you could introduce yourself a bit and talk about what you work on typically and and what you teach there at Jinan University. Sure. Since my focus is on international relations, so I teach courses uh, including Chinese foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, East Asian security, so on and so forth. And because my background is political science, I got my PhD from the University of Chicago. Back a long time ago, 2007. So I、uh, follow international relations、uh, hot topics whenever possible. So basically, I'm a scholar of international relations with a focus on China, Chinese foreign policy, and、uh, Asian security. Fantastic. Well, as I said, I want to focus in our conversation this hour on the view from China. I think by now, most everybody, and certainly people who listen to the show, understand some of the major considerations in the Chinese perspective. That you know, guests like Evan Feigenbaum and others have laid out, you know, clearly enough. On the one hand, China sees alignment with Russia as you know a fellow aggrieved victim of American hegemony, and and like Russia, China would like to see the end of unipolar American dominance. So it, it makes some strategic sense. On the other hand, China also recognizes that the invasion of Ukraine was an unambiguous violation of this principle of sovereignty and territorial integrity that it always touts. 
and uh, they oppose this on principle. And, you know, Beijing doesn't want to suffer secondary sanctions or even, you know, primary sanctions uh, when their total trade with Russia is just, you know, one-seventh of their combined U.S. plus EU trade. So I don't think that there's much debate now on the broad contours of the dilemma that Beijing faces. But I want to go deeper with you. Uh, I want to ask you for your take on something that I should give credit where it's due. I mean, Yun Sun gets into this really in her excellent piece. Uh, what does China's leadership see when it looks at Russia? What is China's honest assessment, in other words, of Russia, uh, of Russian comprehensive power, of Russian intentions in the short and long term, uh, whether those intentions actually align with, with China's own intentions, and you know the reliability of Russia as a partner. Can you talk about these things? How does it size up Russia? Okay, that's a very good question, but also a very big question. I can only uh, speculate uh, sort of from my perspective uh, because I'm in Guangzhou, so kind of uh, far away from Beijing. So, uh, But anyway, I think what the government sees Russia now uh, can be uh, understood from two uh, different factors. One is the short to medium term relationship with Russia. And also the other factor is the long-term development of uh, China itself. So, you know, if you put that into context, then in the short to medium run, of course, in China and Russia enjoy a very high level of partnership. Uh, we call it, you know, in many uh, different terms, uh, strategic partnership and comprehensive strategic partnership. Uh, whatever the name, I think the essence is that in China and Russia do share many common interests with regard to uh, national security, regional security, and China and Russia do in some ways see international order in similar ways, not identical ways, of course, we can discuss that uh, maybe later in more details, but they're similar, uh, meaning at least in one respect that uh, both China and Russia do not, uh, I mean, they don't think the U.S.-led order is totally legitimate or even can be detrimental to their national interests, so on and so forth. So I think in the in the short and the medium run, in this sense, China and Russia do share many views, do share many common interests, so their relationship is going to be very strong. But in the long run, I think if you look at economic terms, right, Russia's economy, of course, is not even, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, top 20 in the world. Just a quick aside here. It's not in the top 10, according to the IMF and the World Bank. It actually ranks number 11. So Russia's economy, yeah, is quite, in a way, small. Even my home province, now Guangdong's economy, is, a, is larger than Russia's economy in terms of GDP, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. just one indicator. And Russia's comprehensive power or strength, I would say, has stalled for the last 20 or something years. And it looks like, judging by the current indicators, it's not going to be very positive in the next 10 to 20 years because of uh, its population and its uh, basic industrial structure, so on and so forth. So in that sense, China, like uh, I've been saying for, for some time now, China, number one goal is to become a global power by 2050. So if you take that into consideration, then China-Russia relationship is a little bit different from this perspective. So I would say 
depending on whether you look at the long term or whether you look at the uh, short to medium term, then you could have actually somewhat different conclusions. So China was pretty confident in the utility of Russia as a short to medium term partner, certainly before February twenty fourth. But in the last couple of weeks, has that assessment changed? Because you know now three weeks into the invasion of Ukraine, Russia is not really covering itself in glory exactly. Well, I would say any kind of strategic level assessment at that level, at the government level, simply cannot change、uh, in a short period、hmm. because it's、uh, still too early to make any kind of a conclusion with regarding the war. Now it's only been a little bit of、uh, three weeks. It's not even one month. The U.S. war、uh, in Iraq, if I remember correctly, last time in early two thousands, also. At least lasted more than one month before they defeated Hussein and all that. So, but in this case, it's not totally comparable, of course. But my point is, we needed to give it a little bit more time to make a more accurate assessment. But of course, even if three months later or six months later, I don't think this kind of a very high level strategic assessment would fundamentally change, unless. Of course, unless there is a very fundamental change within Russia or Russia's、uh, relations with NATO, the U.S. or, or, or the West in general.、Hmm. So as long as that doesn't happen, I don't think、uh, this would change、uh, either. So that means、uh, Russia in the short run and、um, in the medium run is China's、uh, strong partner overall. That said, it doesn't mean that in some More aspects in terms of I would call tactics, right? The kind of、uh, small adjustments、mm-hmm. are likely to happen, which again it's not、uh, surprising because this is a era of unprecedented change in hundred years, as、uh, our President Xi Jinping liked to emphasize. So we are prepared to see this kind of、uh, unexpected events like COVID, like this war, like many, may, maybe many other things to come. Uh, in the, in the coming years, so we are prepared. I think the government is prepared to、uh, make some adjustments, but the fundamental assessment still remains the same. Thank you. So let's zoom out a little bit and and look at this sort of more historically. At what point would you say did relations between Russia and China move onto this course toward convergence, toward this, as you described, a comprehensive partnership? Do do you think that it started, say, with the Yugoslav breakup? And especially with the Kosovo War,、uh, and you know things like, because that was of course taken up by NATO outside of the auspices of the United Nations. China and Russia both opposed it. China, of course, had its embassy blown up in May of 1999.、Uh, my, I'm feeling was it, it always started right around then. But there are other people who would maybe argue for a later date, maybe after 2007,、uh, with Putin's. Munich Security Conference speech in that year, and then the, the the shared sense that both of them had that they were in the American crosshairs for regime change, sort of for kind of people power, color revolution style regime change. What, what's your sense? When did it start? Yeah,、uh, as you said, it's always a long process. It's、uh, maybe difficult to pinpoint the exact、uh, turning point of this、uh, relationship because it's a process. But if you ask me, I would say maybe around 
Well, there are two key turning points, sort of. Uh, one is 2007, like you said, you know, Putin's uh, address at the uh, Munich Security Conference. The other is, of, of course, 2014, the Crimean crisis. So I think that, too, more or less facilitated, I would say, facilitated this uh, relationship. Again, I, I'm not saying this relationship is, as some would say, already so uh, settled, you know, in, in the sense, you know, they are forming a kind of... Uh, real alliance like U.S. relationship with Japan or, or South Korea. It's nothing like that, but uh, it, it has its own very unique uh, characteristics, of course. But remember, if I remember correctly, uh, Putin in the early 2000s even proposed to join NATO. Maybe not a real, right. uh, very sincere, oh. but nonetheless, you, you, you get a sense, <laughs> right? You get a sense he was uh, hoping to uh, have a good relationship with NATO and the West. And somehow, during the fall, you know, in the, in the following years, something happened, and he probably uh, lost hope and decided to act uh, against uh, NATO and etc. But anyway, the, I think the most important turning point is 2014, the Crimea crisis. Hmm. That I think pushed the relationship between Russia and the West into a no turning point direction. And after that, I think because of a few other events, smaller events, I think China and the Russia relationship became warmer and warmer until today. <laughs> so is your sense that this relationship is built on anything more than a shared dissatisfaction with the unipolar American-led world order? Is there more to it than just the common enemy, as it were? Well, we scholars of international relations, of social sciences in general, uh, tend to look at any outcome as a result of multiple factors, right? So we are not you know, accustomed to assign just one single factor in explaining whatever or any outcome. So of course, uh, there is this kind of uh, this pleasure with, uh, you know, unhappiness with the U.S.-led international order, but that's very Broad, it's very big. You know, I don't think that's the uh, only reason, and possibly not uh, the most important reason in understanding this relationship. I, I'm not saying that it's not true. It's it is true, and that the uh, uh, happiness with the U.S.-led international order is uh, deep, and it's uh, with historical uh, roots, and cannot be underestimated. But I think also it's really because they have different uh, worldviews, you know, they have different understandings of the future, so to speak, of international order, other than the U.S. and the West. So this is really about what the future, uh, the global future, would look like from uh, different countries' perspectives. For China, it certainly it's, uh, I mean, the current international order has benefited from, uh, benefited China actually enormously for the last uh, 30, 40 years, and China has made much contribution to that as well. Uh, for Russia, maybe it's a different story. For yeah. Russia, the current international order, of course, I don't speak Russian, I, I don't read the newspapers, but from my very limited understandings, you know, the Russians or a large number of elites within Russia, they do not see this international order benefiting Russia very much for the last maybe 20 or even 30 years, at least since the uh, breakup of the uh, uh, Soviet Union. So they very much dislike this international order and maybe even wanting to establish a new kind of order or 
uh, going back to some parts of the uh, old order, uh, if you will. But China is different. So I think when we say China and Russia sharing some common interests, uh, sharing some similar worldviews, doesn't mean they're identical. China has different worldview than the, than the Russian one. And for many different historical, cultural, and current reasons. So I think if you ask me to list the three reasons why you know China and Russia are joining hands, sort of in uh, against uh, the U.S.-led international order, I would say number one is of course national interest. You know, U.S. is uh, increasingly in China uh, seen as uh, a national security threat. It, it's not a, a done conclusion yet, but increasingly. More and more every day with issues like, uh, you know, we're talking about it very, very soon. And Russia, I think, uh, already sees U.S. as the most uh, uh, significant national security threat uh, for the last uh, at least uh, 10 to 15 years. So uh, this is a national security, this is a national interest argument. There is, of course, the uh, worldview argument, like I just mentioned. It. They have similar worldviews, but not identical. And of course, the third reason I think is more uh, incidental, you know, incidents or crises like um, Crimea, like the Ukraine war now can uh, push these two countries much closer. It's much, very much like the U.S. relationship with Europe, right? I mean, without the Crimea crisis back in 2014, now the Ukraine war, we probably would not expect such a strong or the closer relationship between uh, the U.S. and some uh, European countries, EU as a whole. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I still sense that there is significant difference. I mean, you pointed out some of this. In the worldview, as you say, uh, Russia is deeply dissatisfied with the, the hand it's been dealt, whereas China has thrived under this order. It has played by largely by the rules of the game and has done very well at it. It's not interested in overturning the order. It wants to change some of the rules, for sure. It wants more representation at the table for its team, for sure. But it's a very different approach. Now, if the basis of the relationship still is chiefly in its shared dissatisfaction with with the American-led order, doesn't it make sense that the United States could undo that relationship if the Biden administration were willing to make certain concessions to Beijing, perhaps even use some you know negative inducements as well, sticks as well as carrots. You said yourself, you don't think that, that China is at that point right now where it's absolutely convinced of America as a primary national security threat. So is there still an opportunity right now for the United States, through skillful diplomacy, to pull China in its direction and away from Russia in this moment of crisis? given the penalty that, that China is likely to pay for having cited as much as it has with Russia? I would have framed the issue a little bit differently. I think um, it's not about, uh, as some would say or suggest, uh, prying China away from Russia. That's one way to frame the issue. But I think the uh, issue for me is China from the very beginning and for the next 10 or 20 years very likely is not interested in overthrowing uh, if you will, the international order, even led by the U.S., China very much is still a reformer of the international order, broadly speaking. So China wants to, if you will, modify some of the rules, some of the standards, some of the uh, international institutions more 
favorable to China's interests. It's not really interested or uh, uh, you know or willing to overthrow the international order. So I think that's a fundamental difference from uh, maybe uh, Russia's perspective or, or you know action. So the U.S. certainly can, in my view, accommodate some of China's demands or interests in this way in reforming some of some of the international institutions such as IMF, World Bank, and um, and I give you an example of this, which is uh, the AIIB, right, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, which of course from the very beginning was led by China, but it's uh, actually quite open. One important difference is China does not have the veto power uh, within the AIIB, which means whatever China doesn't like, it doesn't have the power to stop it from actually happening on a large scale. So China has to consult with other member uh, states uh, within the institution uh, when it comes to lending decisions. And one small thing that uh, many people might not uh, be aware of is actually India has been uh, maybe surprising, <laughs> has been the largest recipient of AIIB uh, lending for the last 10 years. Yeah. So that that's very interesting. So that shows um, China is not going to just you know establish its own kitchen, so to speak, as Chairman Mao once said, and uh, eat at <laughs> the separate kitchen. It's We still wanted to eat at the same kitchen, maybe with different food, right? Americans may like uh, uh, McDonald's or pizza or Italian food, more and Chinese may prefer some days to have uh, sushi, rice, and and uh, curry, uh, Southeast Asian food. So it's a, it's analogy, of course, but you get the point. You know, China is not really interested in overthrowing the whole international structure, whether it's a post Cold War international order or whether it's a post uh, World War Two international order. I don't think that's the question. The question is, can the international order be? Uh, modified in a way that China's interests would be more uh, accommodated uh, in, in, in a friendly way. Does Beijing see Russia in in largely the same way that many Americans do? That is, as a fundamentally disruptive kind of a, a spoiler player, as a player that is truly revisionist, as revisionist as it comes, uh, or do they? Uh, have a, a more tempered view of what Russia wants? My sense is that Beijing, of course, sees things differently from the U.S. and the West. And of course, in this regard, sees Russia different from the U.S. and the West in general. Of course, it's my guess. I think uh, Beijing sees Russia more as a, a sort of a normal major power in international politics. I mean, after Soviet Union, right, Russia probably... Uh, no longer is a great power. It's no longer a superpower like it was during the Cold War. But Russia, given its geography, given its history, given its many other uh, advantages, uh, still cannot be underestimated. So this is more from um, realistic thinking that Russia is still a major power. It's a big power. It has influence in the world. It can really impact Europe, of course, but also the whole world. So China sees Russia as a major player, and that uh, the player needs to be respected, needs to be dealt with with extreme care and attention. And China also understands Russia is deeply, deeply dissatisfied with the international order, but 
that's something maybe a result of、uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in that、uh, fashion. It's not necessarily about Russia in essence always being spoiler, so to speak, of the international order. So I think the the sense is from Beijing is after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the European security structure has not been properly、um, managed after the after the Cold War. So it's it's a lingering question from the end of the Cold War, and、uh, I think that's at least partly how Beijing sees the current Ukraine war as sort of an unresolved question、mm-hmm. from the. Collapse of the Soviet Union, right? But certainly very different from the U.S. perspective. Yeah, no, no, certainly. So you, just now, you you mentioned that the Chinese perspective sees Russia as capable of playing a role outside of Europe, and two of the geographies where it has played a role that might not be conducive to Chinese interests are in India and in Vietnam.、Uh, these are countries with which China has had traditional rivalries.、Uh, we've even saw. Skirmishes, unarmed skirmishes, or, or or without firearms, but still deadly skirmishes,、uh, last summer.、Um, how do these relationships between Russia, between Moscow and New Delhi, and between Moscow and and Hanoi, figure into Beijing's thinking? I think for the moment, of course, we have to take things、uh, into perspective, and China, for the moment and for the short run, certainly would,、uh, in a way. Tolerate、uh, Russia's relationships with、uh, India or Vietnam or other countries. As you know,、uh, India is the biggest importer of Russian weaponry, right? right. So India imports a lot of、uh, weapons, advanced weapons from Russia, and India is in a very tense relationship with、uh, with China now. Actually, for the last、uh, few years. And by the way, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi might visit India、uh, later this month, according to some reports. Still unconfirmed, but that's interesting, kind of a twist in this relationship. So, if you talk about China, India, Russia triangle relationship, I think、uh, it's a little bit more、uh, complicated. But my my sense is Beijing is more likely to tolerate this kind of,、um, I would say, normal foreign relationship between. Russia and India, and Russia and Vietnam, despite、uh, China's own、uh, issues with、uh, these, you know, two countries, India and Vietnam. So,、uh, of course, you know, China is very realistic. China understands I cannot stop other countries from developing their normal relationships, right? Or、uh, maybe what I should care about is my relationship with this country, particularly for the moment. And、uh, after twenty years,、uh, we all know you know a lot of things can change. But for the moment, what's important for me is Russia's support for、uh, China's position in the world and vice versa. And、uh, because again,、uh, because of shared interests and shared、uh, happiness with U.S. so on and so forth. But things can change, of course. But for the moment, that that's the picture. I know that you can't see inside Xi Jinping's head, but. Uh, there are a lot of people who who claim that the relationship, the personal relationship between Xi and Putin, is an important piece of the overall China-Russia relationship.、Uh, what do you think of this? I mean, I could be entirely wrong, but it, it's hard for me to imagine that they could know each other well, just you know, communicating through translation, through interlocutors, in, in very stiff and formal settings. 
it's hard for me to imagine that they have an actual read on one another's personality across that cultural chasm. What is your what's your position on on this? I would say I uh, tended to uh, agree with you because, uh, as we know, leaders when they meet, it's usually a few hours, right? And not including uh, translation time, and there is not much the kind of uh, I would say personal, a real personal kind of interaction. It's always about uh, business, so to speak. So I don't think you know they would. Uh, or like any other foreign readers would, if you look at history, they would develop a very strong sense of a personal uh, uh, relationship. Uh, but then again, I think it's more about they uh, might share similar worldviews. Right. They might have similar understandings of what constitutes national interest and what constitutes uh, national security threat. So that kind of a similar understandings and the worldviews, I think, uh, are more, more important than the kind of a personal relationship I think other people are referring to, which is uh, uh, usually always non-existent between state leaders. Interesting. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what's happened just earlier this week. Again, we're recording on the 17th here. But beginning with the leaks just on the eve of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's trip to Rome, where he was meeting with State Councilor Yang Jiechi, these leaks that were given by unnamed administration officials to U.S. and U.K.-based news outlets, the Washington Post and Financial Times, claimed that American intelligence services have learned that Moscow has asked Beijing for military aid. Later, it was reported to be in the form of things like drones and, and other gear. Uh, then, of course, Sullivan and Yang had their meeting in Rome, and the readouts from that were were thin, you might say, uh, and 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 sort of, sort of strange. I want to ask you a little bit about that. Then then on Tuesday, uh, the ambassador to the United States from China, Qinggang, published an op-ed in the Washington Post that sought to clarify China's position. He denied that any such request for military assistance had been made. He emphasized the humanitarian aid that China was sending. Uh, he, you know, the, the, he tried to sort of make it sound like China is intending to play a more constructive role. So let's start with these leaks. What did you hear, if anything, about Chinese official reaction to these claims prior to Qinggang's statement? Well, it's about the leaks now has kind of become a, a pattern, right? Uh, if you look at U.S.-China relations for the last uh, uh, three or four years since Donald Trump uh, taking over, uh, every time when there was an uh, important meeting or negotiation between the two sides, uh, there's always some kind of a story, right, from the uh, major uh, Western media, whether it's New York Times or Washington Post or uh, this time Financial Times. Well, that's one unique feature of the Western uh, system, of course. The reporters can talk to government officials very uh, regularly, very closely. So, but for China, I think the perception is this time, like uh, before times, it was a kind of a, a pressure mechanism mm-hmm. to pressure the Chinese officials uh, in advance before the negotiation actually started. And the pattern always looks like, again, this time, is that after the negotiation is done, the stories disappears from the media. <laughs> so nobody really following that very closely or paying too much attention to that. So I think, again, you know, from the readout uh, by the White House officials after the meeting in Rome, 
I think one of the, or maybe uh, we don't know whom, the senior official, administration official, did not offer uh, any more details about that story, that leak. And there was also another reporting saying that we don't know whether it's uh, confirmed or not. It was maybe a request by Russia uh, to China about some food packages uh, because maybe uh, the weather and the other issues they're, they're lacking. Hmm. So, and also there's this ongoing normal negotiation between Russia and China, right, in terms of military equipment because they do have this uh, exporting importing relationship, uh, the normal one. China uh, actually imports a lot of uh, uh, military equipment from Russia. Right. And uh, so the, it's part of the normal negotiation. So if you mix things together, uh, you could get the impression, oh, Russia is asking some kind of uh, advanced military equipment assistance from China, which I think is not plausible because Russia, first of all, exports military equipment to China. Russia does not need a China's military help, at least not in this stage. This That's is very right. early. Yeah. yeah, three weeks into the war, there's no way that, that right. they would need war material from China, of all places. I mean, right. it struck me as very implausible, yeah. If that really happened, then Russia's war is really in big trouble. You could actually see a different result you know, on, on the battlefield. So anyway, I think, you know, back to the point, I think the kind of um, interaction mechanism between China and the U.S. Uh, is, is very interesting. But I, I think both you know, countries maybe get used to this. It's one of the negotiation tactics, so to speak, and China is fine with that. Although, um, you know, Ambassador Qinggang pointed out it's it's the, it's not true, it's uh, disinformation and all that, but I think, um, yeah, that's part of the pattern. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my friends had theories about what was really going on. Some people thought that somebody in the administration wanted to undermine Jake Sullivan before he went thinking that he would be too lenient and that he wanted to, you know, stiffen his resolve or whatever. Another theory was that this was sort of a good cop, bad cop routine where, you know, Jake could go to 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 Rome and say, well, sorry, I have all these people back home. You see, they're, they're making trouble for me. I'm the good cop here. And then there were other people who just thought that it was maybe something Putin had wanted to do to test Xi Jinping's commitment that there really was such a request, but it was just sort of to, to put pressure on Xi to see whether he would really, you know, come through in this to, for his partner. Anyway, who knows what, what was really happening. But let's talk about the meeting itself. I saw you had tweeted about this with a little bit of optimism. Were you disappointed? Were you surprised at how little mention, for example, there was of Ukraine in the readouts, uh, both in the Chinese and the English versions? Well, I'm... Um not disappointed because I I think in this kind of uh, meetings, right, the readouts are usually very vague uh, right. because they, they don't want to reveal uh, too many details. It, it, it's a pattern. If you look at uh, last November, the meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden, the readout was, uh, as usual, kind of uh, vague and short. But I think if you, the, the few other details that I would remain positive about, number one, the conversation or the dialogue between the two lasted more than seven hours. Seven hours, yeah. Uh, that's unusually long. I mean, it's it's probably, I don't know whether it's the longest, but for a one-on-one uh, discussion, but it's very long. So you could not, yeah, last more than seven hours. You cannot have a seven-hour discussion 
only with uh, shouting at each other, right? It's not possible. So you must have discussed the very substantive issues. Right. And of course, you, you don't agree with each other and maybe you cannot come to agreement with regarding to uh, certain terms. And I think that's expected. So the one thing is uh, it's very long and they discussed uh, many issues like uh, North Korea issue and, of course, Taiwan and uh, Ukraine and, and all that. So uh, they must have reached some kind of, um, I wouldn't say uh, consensus, but, but they must have reached some kind of understanding with regard to uh, certain issues. I think you all also, number two, see some of the post-meeting actions by China or, or Chinese government or, or the tone or the media coverage. Uh, number one is Chinese ambassador had a meeting with the Ukrainian government. And you could see that the tone is different. Well, the, the Chinese ambassador actually, if I remember correctly, admired the unity of the Ukrainian people, right? So, I mean, that's the uh, first time, I would say, uh, that we read such uh, a reporting. And also within China, the media coverage, I think, is, of course, the diverse views, there you know, different people, different scholars expressing their views. But I think uh, at least uh, uh, from my point of view, you see some uh, media discussion coverage of the uh, Ukrainian uh, government uh, uh, reporting. And that's also uh, a slight change, I would say. So if you combine all this together, I would say the meeting in Rome, uh, probably we cannot call it a success, but I think it's an ongoing step toward more collaboration and even cooperation in the coming weeks, months, or, 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 or uh, even longer. So I was not disappointed by the meeting. I think they made some progress and they agreed to to have a maybe a next meeting. We don't know when. And uh, it's a mechanism. They keep the communications open and uh, the chemical they also keep the communication uh, very direct, not through media. I think, <laughs> you know, this time in 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 the readout, I, th- I don't think the kind of um, leaks to the media uh, would be very very productive for the for the meetings between the two countries. Mm-hmm. You mentioned just now that there are different scholars in China airing diverse viewpoints. I th- think maybe you were making reference to an essay that was circulated briefly in China by Huei, who heads a think tank that's affiliated with the state council itself of the Guoyuan. And uh, this was published, in, translated and published by the Carter Center's U.S.-China Perception Monitor. And I'm, I'm curious what you thought of that essay, whether it was representative of more voices than just his, uh, what the significance was that that was silenced as quickly as it was uh, you know, because he called very plainly for a break with Putin. In uh, among the many things that he argued in this piece is that you know the war will actually help restore American primacy and result in a more unified, cohesive West. He said France and Germany will fall in line. Even ostensibly neutral countries, Switzerland and Sweden, of course, will become de facto parts of this U.S.-led alliance. So uh, right now, it's hard to see it happening any other way. What did Beijing make of of Huawei's piece and and what's the significance of it uh well it's of course uh difficult for me to really assess the uh importance of this essay and by the way i think I, we can still 
access the article on on WeChat or other、uh, platforms. Maybe the website itself. Oh, good. Okay, is no longer accessible, but we can read it. it in any way, it's been widely circulated within the Chinese media platform. So everybody, I mean, at least the、uh, scholars and the people who pay attention to this.、Uh, Current ongoing event crisis. Know about this article, and、uh, Professor、uh, Hu is of course a respected scholar.、Uh, he's based in Shanghai. He、uh, used to be the dean of、uh, School of International Relations at Shanghai Jiao Tong University, and he's、um, well known within China. So I would say his voice is of course、uh, first of all、uh, represents、uh, himself, and I would say also that maybe. Is、uh, as it echoes some other people's understanding of this、uh, issue, which in my view is totally normal because China <laughs> actually is a big country. Sometimes this is underestimated that outsiders and our U.S. friends or or, or media tend to see China as a unitary voice. But in terms of scholars, I think it's actually quite diverse. You can find many uh, different uh, voices within the scholarly、uh, community. Just that they. Might come from different spectrum. They might have different、uh, level of、uh, impact, influence, so on and so forth. So for this one,、uh, I would say it's not、uh, at least not yet,、uh, maybe not likely,、uh, you know, to be the dominant voice of, of China,、uh, regardless of the government view.、Uh, at least among scholars and experts, this is not certainly the majority view. I think as some. People I know have pointed out actually the essay itself has kind of a logical inconsistency because、uh, in his article he actually、uh, identifies the U.S. as the most serious kind of、uh, challenging or threat to that to China's national security. So if we follow that logic, if that's what he meant in the essay, then you know cutting off relationship with Russia probably doesn't help China's situation, right? Because this would only Further,、uh, for example, isolate China's position vis-a-vis、uh, -vis the U.S. So,、uh, some people point out that some people point out also it's impossible to、uh, cut off our relationship with Russia for many reasons, and、uh, so it's impractical sort of a policy、uh, recommendation. And、mm -hmm. but either way, I think this article is interesting and it's、uh, causing some、uh, thinking. And maybe rethinking and debating within the Chinese circle, at least in the in the scholarly community. But I think the impact of that,、uh, for now, is not as significant and、uh, would remain、uh, to be seen. Thank you. There's been quite a bit of buzz about the possibility that Beijing could play a role, even a pivotal role, as a peacemaker. That it could host five-party talks with Ukraine, with Russia, the U.S., and the EU, and China, of course. Do you think that that's a possibility or a likelihood, even? And if so, how do you think such a thing could come about? How would how would that come into into being? Well, I think it's a possibility, but it's a very small one、mm -hmm. for two reasons. Number one, China is not a direct party of the war or the crisis in、uh, Ukraine or in Europe、uh, as a whole. So I don't think other countries would really, in a way. Welcome or want China to be involved, right? Because this is really far away from、uh, China. So whether they would like to have China's、uh, 
involvement, I think it's it's quite uh, skeptical for me. Uh, number two, even if they wanted to involve China, because China is a uh, you know permanent member of the UN Security Council, China is now enjoys a very good relationship with Russia, and China certainly wants to maintain its normal uh, good relationship with U.S. And certainly, China has a very good relationship, economically speaking, with uh, EU as a whole, particularly with uh, Germany and France. So, China wants to basically, as some in the U.S. would say. And have the cake and also eat it, right? So China wants to play that role, yeah, I think, yeah. uh, for sure. If you know it gets to the point that everybody wants China to play that role, and then the second issue is whether China has the capability to play that role. Uh, here, I'm more skeptical because mm. I don't think China has the kind of uh, authority or uh, or even in the eyes of many Western experts, credibility to be uh, that. You know, neutral and that even-handed when it comes to the relationships with uh, Russia. So I think uh, for those two reasons, I don't think it's a very uh, it's possible, of course, but it's a small possibility. But China can play the role maybe in an indirect way, in a small step way. You know, China can encourage both Russia, which I'm sure is uh, happening uh, quietly, to um, have a plan to exit uh, this Ukraine crisis. And China can also encourage uh, right. uh, EU member countries to uh, come to you know the table, negotiation table with, uh, with Russia. And of course, China can also talk to, uh, as they uh, have done just you know two days ago, with the Ukrainian government as to how to uh, stop the war and uh, restore peace, so on and so forth. But it's not going to be as significant as uh, some would suggest or recommend. Yeah. I mean, there are some hopeful signs. that has nothing to do with China, of course, but some hopeful signs. that There's been some reporting that we saw in the FT about a neutrality plan that's been drawn up between Russian and, and Ukrainian negotiators. Supposedly, there's going to be a, a peace agreement in exchange for a promise of, you know, uh, Ukraine not joining NATO declaring neutrality and actually accepting limits on its armed forces, which sounds like a defeat to me. It sounds like not, not a very good op- option, although, you know, considering the, the brutality of what we've seen, it, who knows, not my place to say. I'm wondering, how do domestic considerations factor into Xi Jinping's thinking right now? I mean, it looks like, I, I may be wrong here, I'm relying, I have to admit, mostly on Western reporting, but... There was a big piece by Ling Lingwei today in the Wall Street Journal saying that Xi Jinping's ambitious common prosperity agenda, uh, this program that we've been calling this Red New Deal as a shorthand, ha- has stalled a bit. And the major factors include the obvious ones like you know the threat of a, a COVID nineteen outbreak of of an Omicron outbreak, which has already seen you know Jilin Province and the city of Shenzhen basically locked down, but obviously the Russian invasion has has hurt as well. How are domestic considerations playing into Xi Jinping's thinking about the Ukraine war? Well, uh, as we always say, uh, you always needed to look at uh, two big pictures. One is international, one is domestic, right? So they're always interconnected uh, with each other. You cannot ignore one uh, just by focusing on the other one. So I think it's, um, if you say from the, just concluded two sessions uh, meetings that uh, the Chinese government is maybe uh, 
uh, reshifting or refocusing on domestic economic growth issues. I think uh, you're right because again, uh, the COVID is you know, causing so much uh, damage uh, to the global economy, certainly uh, including China's economy. Uh, actually, the Chinese economy last year grew about um, uh, six, uh, yeah, eight percent. That's 8%. because of the low base of yep. the previous uh, years. So. Right, there right, right. is always, I think, since last year, since the uh, second half of last year, this worry that Chinese economy could further uh, slow down uh, this year, uh, 2022. And I think since yeah. last December, last last quarter uh, of the year, there were some worrying signs of a further slowing uh, Chinese um, uh, economy. So I think in in that sense, you know, if you also look at the news at the, uh, the stock market, some of the tech companies, and uh, uh, combined with uh, some pressure and penalties from the U.S., so this really causing kind of a, a confidence uh, shaking, I would say, or, or even a crisis among some Chinese yeah. entrepreneurs or businesses community. So I think it's about time to uh, reassure uh, that Chinese economy will continue to. Uh, grow and to uh, stabilize this year, the target is uh, not quite high, but it's also uh, not low either. It's uh, you know something between yeah five five point five percent, yeah right. That that's Around quite ambitious half, yeah. if you look at the global economy uh, outlook. Yeah. So I think there must be something in terms of policy that the Chinese government can do to uh, facilitate to to restart sort of a. Uh, you know, if you will, just you know, this economy. So I think that's why I think common prosperity is uh, always there. It cannot be uh, underestimated. It's just maybe for the moment, uh, for the sake of uh, uh, confidence, uh, you know, restoring or, or maintaining. Uh, they don't want to put too much emphasis on that because that could cause some, you know, unnecessary uh, uh, thinking. Uh, about the Chinese economy or policy direction. It doesn't mean it's not uh, important or it has been changed. It, it's just that for, for the moment, maybe for the uh, first uh, six months or nine months of 2022, uh, let's try to work out this economy growth uh, issue first. And then uh, I'm sure when the time is uh, ready, uh, it will be uh, again uh, in the narrative. It's still it's frustrating for me still, and I think maybe people can sort of tell that I I know what I would like to see happen, and uh, it, it it sounds like nobody thinks that that that's a likelihood right now, <laughs> including you. Nobody nobody uh, knows but, nobody knows Kaiser. Yes, you know nobody knows nobody COVID knows was coming. Right, but, nobody uh, knows yeah. uh, nobody knew. I mean the evasion was coming. So uh, the thing about international politics, if you uh, follow uh, closely, that. You know, every twenty or thirty years, there's going to be uh, such a big change uh, in terms of international politics broadly, and everybody, including all the scholars, would be surprised. Oh, this! How come I didn't see this coming? But it's very difficult to foresee, you know, uh, changes in international politics, which can be quite frustrating, but also can be, uh, on the other hand, quite, quite, uh, I mean, interesting because we we need to be humble about our. Uh, projections of the future. We need to be humble about our own analysis and everything. I think uh, that that's 
quite uh, I mean as a scholar that's that's interesting no th those are words to live by absolutely Professor Chen Dingning, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. That was terrific. I really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. First, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support the work that we do with the podcast, the best way is to subscribe to the new China Access Daily Newsletter. It's been fully revised. It, it's uh, got a different order. You should check it out. It looks really, really great. Uh, not only do you support our podcast, but you also get this fabulous newsletter, which features an in-depth Roundup of all the important China-related news of the, day, of the day, delivered right to your inbox every evening U.S. time. Okay, so recommendations. Hopefully, Professor Chen, you've had some time to think about it. What do you have for us? Well, uh, of course, uh, I have many, many excellent and great books to recommend if I uh, were a teacher, you know, for my class, for my students. But I, my principle is I actually like to go back to history and read some of the great classic books yeah. that can endure times change so that can give us a wisdom about um, not only the past but also the future so this time i would uh, actually uh, recommend because you said just one book i would recommend uh, the great book by the late harvard professor uh, vogel uh, the biography of deng xiaoping oh fantastic i yeah. think that's yeah that's a, a classic book not only for us to understand uh, in the past, uh, you know, 40 years, how China has gotten where we are today. I think a lot of people have forgotten that, uh, either because of their personal experience or they're uh, so so focused on the, the moment, the current crisis. I think we needed to step back a little bit, little bit and look at maybe your experience, my experience would tell, you know, a little bit of a different story, how in the 1980s China was like, and how Deng Xiaoping initiated the uh, reforms and how his thinking still, I think, are very, very important and very, very relevant for today's China and the future of China. And, and uh, don't forget, Deng Xiaoping said, you know, by the middle uh, of this century, uh, he said already in the, in the 1980s, so sometimes hard to believe, that China would achieve the middle uh, power uh, status it's not even the superpower. So yeah. I think we needed to, again, re-read Deng Xiaoping and uh, uh, retake some of his uh, wisdom words. You know, I think it's just invaluable. I think uh, it deserves our special attention, uh, the book by uh, Professor Vogel. I really miss Ezra Vogel. I had the, the chance to get to know him uh, in the last few years of his life. And uh, I have a, a copy of his book that he signed to me and. It's, it was yeah. It was really really sad that he he passed when he did. Uh, his wisdom would be much needed. With the book, he's always with us. I think that's the beauty of uh, intellectual life. That's right. You know, your book will endure time. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to recommend a book too that I hope will endure as well. It's Jing Zhu's new book, Kingdom of Characters: The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. It's just a marvelously readable book that I I, I imagine any precocious undergraduate, any, you know, layperson with no exposure to China, no exposure to the Chinese language or the writing system or to modern Chinese history uh, could really just pick up and read and come away just knowing a whole lot more. It, it basically follows the struggle to first create, you know, a, a, a way to transliterate the written Chinese language, then about the typewriter, about telegraphy, about the simplification of characters, about how you pee in. 
eventually mm-hmm. digital input into computers where it really where it ends it. It's got really well chosen individuals on whom it focuses, including some people you know everyone knows, like you know Li Yutang. Uh, and it gives you a good sense of, of their historical circumstances, the mm-hmm. challenges that they faced in their times. Uh, I listened to it on audiobook, and I did it in just a few long, epic stretches. And it's so good. And so Jing Zhu herself, who teaches at Yale, she reads it and has a really lovely reading voice and, of course, pronounces all the Chinese correctly, which is very nice because we hate it when <laughs> people pronounce the Chinese so badly. So it was, it's a lovely book. I, I'm looking forward to having her on the show to talk about uh, about her book. Once I finish, I have a, quite a, a number more of, of shows of, uh, that are going to focus on Ukraine, but we'll double up on some of them and, and, and hopefully the war will end soon. Anyway, thank you so much, Chen Dingding, for, for joining me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Kaiser. It's been wonderful. Hope to uh, be with you again. You will be. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.